0: A werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand
1: the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions.
0: All right, welcome to the Wolf Den. This is Dan David. I'm here with the pack, our usual suspects today. We have Tick, our producer, and Carl, our sound engineer. God help us all. Uh, We have a great guest today. I'm very excited to talk to Herb Greenberg. Herb has been a business reporter, oh, I'll say for a while, Uh, as long as I've been paying attention to business anyway. He's done some pretty famous and prolific stuff, although he's kind of modest about it. But we'll drag it out of him anyway. I became aware of Herb as a contributor to CNBC. He was on there almost every day when I was paying attention back in 2011 and before. He now is a partner at Pacific Square Research. And uh, I've read some of his research, and it's just it's phenomenal. It's short-side research, really good stuff, the kind of stuff that investment banks aren't doing. Welcome to the show, Herb. Hi, Dan. I'm glad to be here. So, Herb, you know, you, you've done a few of these things, and you're you're just maybe one of my most well-known guests. And there's a lot of stuff out there people can talk about uh, that, that you've done. But I kind of want to get to some of the stuff that, some of the rich detail stories that you might have in the trenches, uh, dating back when. I know of you, as I said, starting with, you know, the 2010-2011 China RTO crisis, you were pretty much one of the only guys on CNBC willing to talk about this in any kind of detail. Uh, but you had a rich career before that. So before we get into that time period, why don't you tell us about how you started and how, how things have changed maybe since you've started reporting and being a business journalist?
1: Yeah, this you know I go way back. Uh, my first job out of school was in 1974 at the then Boca Raton News, where I by default became the business journalist there, the business reporter there. Uh, what do
0: you mean by default?
1: I, I was I was wondering if you were going to ask that <laughs> by default because back then you have to understand they had a Sunday they had a Sunday edition a weekend edition. And that was in the Watergate area, the post-Watergate era. Right. And that was in the era when nobody wanted to be a business reporter. And I, you know, I didn't I didn't start out wanting to be a journalist or a business reporter. I had no business background. You know, it's all these things you fall into, you know, through yeah. school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the kind of thing where they'd circulate the business reporter job, you know, who's going to do the business page every week. And nobody wanted to do it. You know, everybody rather be covering city council or whatever the case was. So I said, I'll do it. And I went out and I did some, I'll never forget the first business story I did was a story about a manager at the local Publix. And how a manager, at, how you could go to Publix and start, you know, be a bagger. And you could end up going and becoming a manager. And at Publix in those days, it was actually a pretty good job. I'm sure it still sure is. There's a lot of profit sharing. Uh, and it was uh, it was just a good story. So I started doing those little thumb suckers, uh, you know, and and wanting to do them and going out and starting to interview, you know, you forget Boca Raton is where a lot of very wealthy successful people had retired. And I just sort of, you know, started building interviews and doing interviews like Lee Iacocca was down there. He used to be, you know, that he was the, when
0: did you interview Lee Iacocca
1: back in 1974, 75.
0: Wow. That's interesting. Uh,
1: Yeah. And it was, it was a scary interview because you know, you do your research, I came with a tape recorder sure we had the interview in a conference room at the boca Raton hotel and club i know nothing about the guy and he struts in with his pr guy and he's a big guy and he sits down and the first thing they say is no tape recorder and it's like my oh no what am i gonna do and now i've got and this guy just talks fast and yeah. he's cursing and i'm like right you know what? And uh, so I did that, you know, I did a lot of those. So I started to do a bunch of interviews down there and people would come to town. I do the, um, you know, go to the conferences that would be there and interview some uh, economist who says there's a 50% chance we're headed toward a, uh, a a depression equal to or worse than the 1929 crash. And of course, 50% chance. And I'm just a young reporter and I'm writing it down saying, oh man, he said a 50% chance. So I just started doing that kind of thing. And then, um,
0: well, I, I would say Boca Raton now is where penny stock frauds go to retire
1: that's right I, I gotta well let me tell you there's a there's a funny story because among the among the the again I call them thumb suckers we, that I did back then these are the the stories you just do they're featurettes they're for the business page one of the stories and this is a precursor to the penny stock frauds even though it was nowhere near penny stock but it shows the type of things that were going on it shows how gullible I was I probably still am. But there was a there was a story I did about a guy who um, he's a former cop. And the story was he had this white powder that was this miracle powder. And he was going to be selling this powder. that was sort of like baking baking powder, baking soda that you could put in your in your refrigerator or do whatever you wanted. And it was this miracle stuff. And I wrote this story about this guy and his wife, blah, blah, blah.
0: It was this was a positive story.
1: This is a. Of course, I only did positive stories. So
0: you 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 actually thought this guy had ma- magic baking soda?
1: Hey, I had to write a story. I had to write something once a week. It was a, there was a business component <laughs> to it. All right. So it turns out
0: you've gotten skeptical since then.
1: A little skeptical. Yeah. So the the uh, so it turns out a number of years later he was arrested because in those barrels. He was he was a gun stealer. He's an arms dealer. Uh-huh. And he was sort of he was he was one importing is arms. Or. So, you know, it was one of those things where I was sort of like putting this helping put this facade on this, uh, you know, this guy who was really using those that white. Oh, well, berry. look,
0: I mean, you know, you were you're a cub reporter in the in the business section. Nobody wanted. And the way I see it, you shed some light on a criminal that started down the path of bringing him to justice. How's that?
1: Yeah, and it actually started teaching me. Look, I learned a lot back then, and and I learned a lot about journalism. And It's funny, you learn little things, and if you say, well, what did you really learn from all the people you interviewed and everything? Tell you what I learned. I learned that one thing about journalism, and I even carried through to today to the research business, is you never can, you have to be careful when you write, and you never uh, know how people react to things, where you're adding value in this world I live in today, you never know exactly where you're going to add value because little tidbits, End up being valuable, something somebody doesn't care about will be valuable. And that's why even when people put stuff on social media, people write things and they don't realize the little thing you say could be misconstrued. Yeah. And that's why sometimes you, you know, painstakingly work on words and sentences to sort of get it right.
0: Well, you learned that lesson early and, and you still think about it today.
1: I do. And then I, you know, I, I just started moving through journalism. I stayed there for a short amount of time. I went to a trade publication after that um, that, uh, covered the circuses, fairs, carnival, auditory, marina industry.
0: How did you get in the business world?
1: Well, into the real business world is I was looking, uh, to get out of the trade publication, uh, after about a year and six state fairs. And, and I actually wanted to to work at a circus for a summer, but I was offered my job in, in Boca Raton instead. I, um, I actually, uh, then got a little more serious and I went to work. I got hired at the, uh, say the St. Paul Pioneer Press. It was owned by Knight Ritter. Knight Ritter is mm-hmm. the organization yeah. that owned that owned in those days. Yeah, um, a lot. It was the Knight Ritter newspaper chain, which you you probably know. Yeah. and mm-hmm. and it was it also owned the Boca Raton News at the time. And it was a good short at one to, time. It was a good short at one time, right? It was it was as were all newspaper stocks. Yeah. And I was a, um, uh, I had gone to college on a scholarship. I'd gone to the University of Miami on a scholarship from um, the Miami Herald uh that i got when i was at miami-dade community college um to finish my last year's and it was on a scholarship from miami Herald. so i had this knight Ritter connection plus i was raised in in miami so i wanted to go back to knight ridder i liked knight ridder and I interviewed around did not get hired in Detroit, thankfully. I actually did. did hey, uh, I know you're from Michigan? Hey, yeah, hey,
0: I, 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 I let the Miami I, thing go. D- don't even be crap <laughs> on Detroit, pal. We I, had enough problems. I
1: almost no. They. I did not. Thankfully, I didn't get hired there because it would have been the wrong connection. I would have been on the city side. I was not set up for that. But I got hired in St. Paul, and it was a great opportunity because in yeah. those days, in 1977, St. Paul was a mini Chicago. And you got to really start covering things there, and I really was able to get in. And again, I wasn't as critical as I was as I was and as I became. But I went to St. Paul and started to learn because I was starting to interview. You know, we had retail, I had the railroads, I had the airlines. I was covering the I was covering these beats, mm-hmm. and you're starting to really get a feel for things. And you you know you're again, you're just doing basic reporting, um, but it was to set the stage for when I went to Chicago three years later. To Crane Chicago Business, and Crane's was a very aggressive publication. It was a weekly, and I, as a as a reporter for weekly, with a very tough managing editor who really uh, challenged me, ran me through my paces, didn't let me get away with anything, and I think made me. I call it the boot camp of my career. Uh, really, um, I think helped me become a better journalist. Uh, this guy's name was Greg David. He went on to be the uh, the uh, editor of Cranes New York Business, but he was very good in the sense of just he was difficult to work for, but you need that in your career, and um, and so I stayed at Cranes for about two and a half years. It was really tough. We covered annual meetings of every company. We literally went to the annual meetings. It didn't matter if there were three people there of every company. I was covering all sorts of companies and industries and challenging. That's where I became far more critical, trying to write stories. They did not want you to write a This may happen, that may happen, this story. They wanted you to have a point of view. That was point of view journalism. And that where you, where you sort of spin the story forward, have a strong point of view. I remember we were working on a piece. I was working on a big cover story with another reporter on Motorola. And I couldn't come down to, Motorola is based in Chicago area, and I couldn't come down to determining whether this was gonna be a bad company that was gonna blow up you know, there were too many twists and turns to it. And he did not want to hear that. And it was really, you had to have a bottom line to these stories. So I used that then to morph over to the Chicago Tribune, where I became a, a business reporter covering the food industry. And,
0: and what, the, what years was this? Was Crane and, and the Chicago Tribune? Crane's,
1: Crane's was 1980 yeah. to 1983, roughly. Okay, um, so that's pre-cell cell phone
0: Tribune. for Motorola. So. I, Free cell phone. I, yeah. So Motorola probably took off from there and then crashed. Um, and then you went uh, uh, to the Tribune, a very went famous newspaper tribunes, in Chicago.
1: Started, started covering, um, you know, the food industry mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I was leaked stuff from one of the famous insider trading rings called uh, this guy, Dennis Levine. Turns out I was on the receiving end of these anonymous phone calls, which is a whole different story, which has been written about, which I've written about, which is, uh, was kind of interesting, but the Chicago Tribune, of course, was the Chicago Tribune. What's the gist of that story?
0: The gist of that story? You may have told some of these stories many, many times, but you have a whole new audience here that's kind of coming out, you know, post 9-11 or 2008 crash. They want to hear them.
1: So look, I was was in Chicago covering the food industry. There are a lot of mergers and acquisitions in those times with companies that no longer exist or that are owned by other companies. And um, the, they were becoming There was a lot of consolidation in that space. And when you work for a place like uh, like the Tribune, you do get a lot of people calling you with information, trying to tip you, tip stories, tip you to stories and things like that. that of course, you have to go out and try to report. You just can't take every tip and just publish it. But I like, think that's what
0: blue horseshoe uh, loves Anacott steel.
1: Not quite, okay. but it, but there was a guy, there was a specific guy who called me on several mergers and acquisitions. One was when um, American Stores was going to acquire Jewel, which was a chain mm-hmm. in Chicago. American yeah. Stores was in Arizona.
0: This is grocery stores. And the,
1: yeah, and the other was when G.D. Searle was going to be involved in some transaction. I forget what the transaction was, but I was getting these, this very nice guy calling me with these, very good information that we were able to confirm. So, for example, with Jewel and American Stores, the guy said, You know, Sam Skaggs from Jewel met with Wes Christofferson, the CEO, uh, or Sam Skaggs from American Stores met with the CEO of, um, of Jewel in Denver. They had a meeting in Denver. So I called every hotel in Denver. Wow. In those days, you could get the information. And finally, someone said, Yeah, he was. I said, I'd like to, you know, to find out was, was, you know, West Christopherson staying here or Sam's guys, whatever I said. And I found the place where they were staying. So I was able to confirm that there was a meeting and that the two guys were meeting and uh, I was able to uh, we published cool. the stories and I'll never forget one story I published, they halted trading. I think it was this one. It may have been the Searle story or this, they halted trading of the stock the day i wrote the story you know did you feel powerful like no i felt scared <laughs> i didn't know what to expect like oh my god yeah. cuz i always figure something you know you know you've got it but you know the feeling you just thought you just don't know you're right so, oh
0: i do know the feeling
1: you know that feeling if you write if you're even yeah. doing what you do if you write it if you have impact you don't know what's going to follow once there's impact and dan Dorfman worked for the uh, chicago tribune at the time he was in the new york office and he uh, He called my editor saying they're going to say the Tribune was wrong. And I got to know Dan. I was friends with Dan. But he told my editor and I'm saying, oh, my God, we're about to get sued. And God knows what's going to happen. Well, of course, they confirmed the story. And um, long story short, we fast forward. So I've been in the Tribune doing some good stuff. I moved to New York to become the Tribune's New York financial correspondent. This is probably about 1985, 86. And uh, I'm sitting there one day. We're. Office was at the Daily News building at 3rd third, uh, third and uh, 42nd. And late in the afternoon, I get this thing hey, there's this U.S. attorney's going to have this uh, press conference. You got to go down and, uh, you know, there's some insider trading something. So here I slept down, take the four or five, get downtown. I don't know, U.S. attorney, I think it was Giuliani at the time. I don't know who was the attorney general. So, I mean, it was U.S. attorney. Anyway, so whoever was giving the press conference, I go down there and there's this, I get the, I get the, I get the documents and I'm looking, GD Searle, American Stores and Jewel, this guy named, you know, I go, oh my God, this is, this is where I was getting the stories. And there's a name, but it was for a guy named Robert Wilkes, thinking Robert Wilkes, who's Robert Wilkes? And so i go back to my office and i call this guy's home Mm -hmm. and oh my god it's his voice on the phone answering the phone i say i got him that's who my source was because we never knew why would somebody be giving us this was it somebody who was mad at the company you don't know but if the information's real and you can confirm it you know you've got your stories Mm -hmm. so I, i then i call back later and it's his daughter's and his daughter's voice on the phone. His voice is no longer on the phone because I called and left a message. Uh-huh. Well, they obviously, you know, I said, hey, I think I know you. We need to talk. So then I go back a few weeks later.
0: So when you say th- when you say you, his voice, it was the answering machine. It wasn't him picking up. the it's phone. The, no,
1: it's the answering machine.
0: OK, OK. I, was like, oh gotcha. my God,
1: I can't believe this is the guy. OK. Um, you know, for, for two years, I'm wondering, who is this very nice guy? I'm what was his
0: to? motivation, ultimately, besides money? <laughs> I'm sure it, it was money. It was money.
1: It was one of the great insider trading. It, this was one of the great, of the day, this was one of the great insider trading cases. And so the next, a few weeks later, I get the same, you know, late in the day, press conference, suit is being filed. They go down, it's about, it gets the guy named, now they put together the next person who this guy, Robert Wilkes, was with. Right. This guy named Dennis Levine. And Dennis Levine worked for Drexel Burnham in the day. He was the, he was really the sort of the lead person here. So I, I go, my God, this is this big, this is really big. So I go to the arraignment the next day and I get to the court, the court early and there's this woman there and she comes up to me. She wonders if I'm an attorney. It turns out it's Dennis Levine's wife. She was very, very uh nervous and very
0: uh as a wife should be in that situation.
1: And she was she had no idea what was coming. Yeah. Then he comes in the courtyard courtroom and I walk up to him and I say, you know, I think we've met. Actually, I'm gonna reverse this. I think it was Dennis Levine first, Bob Wilkes second. I that's what it was. It was the Dennis Levine case first. Dennis Levine was the first one. I walk up to him in the arraignment, I say, I think I've we've met before, because this was all of the the, the, the gd Searle the american stores and some other stuff and he says i don't think so and it wasn't his voice it was the next few weeks later when the Robert wilkes came out i call and I got him and that's yeah. how I knew so I'm sorry i got the order wrong it's been a few years but yeah. um but it was interesting because this became this was one of the first big insider trading cases of modern era that sort of um uh sort of set new rules in place and you know became quite a uh, quite a sensation of the day.
0: So that was that was really your first time being involved in something bigger than yourself really. I mean Yeah.
1: Yeah, this was this was where I really was able to put it all together and then there was you know there were stories written and books written and People I worked with, reporters I worked with, were able to interview Levine and were able to put Were you in any of together. those books?
0: Were you mentioned in any of those yeah, books?
1: Yeah, I think I was mentioned in the, I have it here somewhere in the Dennis Levine book, and I was mentioned in stories because I either, I worked with one of the reporters who wrote one of the stories or books um, I worked with.
0: Now beginning. admit it, when you're in your 20s and your 30s and, you, and you're and you in a book, that's kind of cool, right? Yeah, it was
1: pretty cool. Now, now it's no I, big I, deal I, for you. Yeah, what's that?
0: Now it's no big deal for you.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's it's, there's so much going on. So I, uh, I uh, then after that, uh, you know, the market's rocking and rolling. I want to make a change. I actually want to get back to Chicago. I really don't want to stay in New York. So, but the Tribune won't have me back at that point. They say, you haven't been gone long enough. So I ended up then making a switch. And I switched to one of my sources was, in in those days, I was talking to a lot of risk arbs. And uh, one of my sources was risk risk arbs. So I went to work for a risk arbitrage firm in 1986. And that's that's where, again, I learned, learned, learned what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I learned I worked at a at a firm um, called Paddington Partners. I worked for two two guys who were childhood friends. Uh, And it was hard. That was the first time I think I was sort of you go to a situation. You had been the, the reporter. I won't you've been had some persona. You've been out there and suddenly you walk into this very quiet office. You're told to sit over there. You're not really part of the the center of it all. And you just are there all day, just sort of working. And they Mm -hmm. did some activist stuff back then. It was kind of exciting because I was involved in one of the activist programs when Anchor Hocking was sold. We were big owners of Anchor Hocking and I was able to make the calls to the directors and back in those days and say, hey, we're big owners of the stock. What are you gonna do? And really get involved in the situation. I was able to put on the position. The only time I've ever had that been told to just suddenly, hey, how much do we buy? And I'm like, how much do we buy? What are you talking about? And they're talking real money. Um, and I did that, but I was always a little bit of a fish out of water there. I didn't feel quite great doing that job. I knew I was making more money and could make more money than I could as a journalist.
0: Oh, and bet. I'll never
1: forget. I get a, I got a phone call. I get a phone call from a friend who I'd worked with in Chicago, who now had moved to the San Francisco Chronicle and he'd become the city editor. And he said, we have this new business column we've started, but I'd really, you know, the people are just starting it. Publisher wanted started. Would you be interested in, in in interviewing for this job? And I said, nah, this is too, the potential with this job is just too great for me to, to go back to journalism. And that was probably in, ah, maybe it was in August of 1987.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in October of 1987, they had this thing called the stock market crash. I,
0: I heard about that, <laughs> yeah.
1: and I had been taking Black classes, Monday. It, Black Monday. I had been taking financial accounting classes at the uh, New York, then the New York Institute of Finance, and I would go there every Monday night. I think Monday. I think it was every Monday night, and uh, take my classes. And um, things were getting kind of rocky in the market before that. And I remember the day of the crash, watching the partners in our firm, who really, two guys who had their acts together, really, I wouldn't say they were panicking, but they were, like everybody, they were freaked out. And I remember walking down Nassau Street that day, after going to my class, there wasn't crowded the way it used to be. People Mm -hmm. were devastated. And going to the class, and the class Mm -hmm. was only uh, half full. And thinking to myself, there are going to be a lot of people out of work and I'm in a job that I'm not a hundred percent happy doing. And I went home that night and I called my friend at the San Francisco Chronicle. And I said, Hey, Dan, you know, that job you called me about still open. And, and so,
0: and, and I, that was uh, literally on black Monday, black Monday. Wow.
1: And two months later, I made some excuse that I was going to be on vacation and, and I um, flew out to uh to San Francisco, New Year's, over the New Year's holiday. I think it was over New Year's, over Christmas sometime, I don't know. Went out and uh, interviewed for the job and got the job and took it, you know, made the move and made the change a few months later. Partners at the firm weren't, you know, they were not thrilled, I think, that I was making that change, but um, it was right for me. And I knew what I had to do because I also knew I was ready to take on a column. I knew I was at the stage of my career where I could actually try to do something. And what I did when I went to San Francisco, and this is very important, this is pre-internet. This is pre-CNBC. This is a very different era. And what I knew I wanted to do was I wanted to have a proprietary column and I wanted to do it differently than the typical business column in a public in a a newspaper. I wanted it to be stocky and edgy. And that's sort of what they wanted. It was in the days of mergers and acquisitions. There was speculation. Mm -hmm. Dorfman was doing it on a national scale. I think I wanted to do what he was doing on a regional scale. Mm -hmm. But you weren't just regional. You were in San Francisco. You were where things were starting to happen, where growth stocks were starting to really get. You know, that was the root of so many of them with Montgomery Securities and you know, uh, you know, Robbie Stevens and all these different firms, Hamburg and Quist. Everything that was happening in San Francisco, Silicon Valley was starting to move, but it wasn't anything, anything like it is today. So I went, I sold them on this proprietary column. It's easy to sell something, you know. You have this vision in your head, and I went out and I just started doing this thing where I start talking to people and writing up, you know, doing interviewing money managers and. Really having a long biased an M and A, more of an MA type bias, a rumor bias, trying to do the rumor type stuff back then. And I uh And
0: that became like a started, ten year a 10-year career for you, right? That was
1: 10 years to the day. And yeah. it was so I started this whole concept first of doing the edgy stuff, but I also had heard about these guys, the Feshback brothers.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: I yeah and, and I heard about these guys. They shorted stocks. I'd read about them. And I thought, you know. That's interesting because you could basically go out. Everybody wants to know what's going to be doing well. But how about if we go out and find out where their trouble is going to be? Right. So I called up Joe and, and his brothers and we started chatting. Now, the, and, this is Joe um, Feshbach. Joe Feshbach, the, the late Joe Feshback.
0: Yeah. The, the Feshbach brothers, as you talked about, I mean, you talk about OG. These guys are OGs of the OGs. They are the original Back original the gangsters. Yeah. And you had,
1: you had the whole crew. They had a look who they had working for them back then. I mean, they had, they had the Barton brothers. They had, uh, they had Jim Carruthers, They had a whole bunch of people. Carothers worked there. Jim Carothers worked
0: there. Who else worked there? I
1: believe, I believe so. I huh. believe Jim worked there back in the day. I think I, and I, I, I mean, my memory is fading at times Yeah, but at my advanced age, but, um, I think that, uh, uh, it was just, a, you know, just these guys, these very
0: interesting people. The, this is the difference between then and now. I mean, just some of the dis- differences, right? Their techniques range from, you know, doing what you did as a reporter where you get a lead and you call a hotel or every hotel in Denver to figure out if somebody's there, they, they would go through people's trash. They, they would take uh, things that are shredded and put them back together. Uh, they, 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 they busted Barry Minkow, right? That was them, wasn't it? That, uh... ZZZ
1: Best. I don't know if it was them, but I it might as well have been because back then they were really, um, you know, they were the game back then. They were the guys. Yeah. And they, you know, so you'd start talking. I start talking to these people. And the thing is being, being a journalist, the one thing people would often forget, look, when I was doing the M&A work, people thought I was on the take. So I, when I started doing this column, I had to make sure I was not investing in anything yeah. I was out of the market. No one one thing I wanted was no one could accuse me of doing anything. So well, they I still they still
0: do. So there you go. But
1: they still do and they did throughout. But I yeah. put that ban on. Yeah. Even before the, the, the Chronicle had a policy. I created my own policy because Hold I on. started hearing things about me.
0: The the Chronicle <laughs> the Chronicle didn't have a policy with their MA reporters that you couldn't invest.
1: It wasn't a policy, back then it was a different world. There was no, wow. there was no formal policy. It wasn't an M&A report. it was a business reporter. And I'm not, right. I don't know what the firm policy was. It was, one thing was certain, I made, made it very clear back then, you know, I could own no individual stocks. You could not be involved in anything. I just tried to keep it as, you just try to keep it away from it so you could sort of smile when people said things about you. And you right. start hearing things about yourself and then you, you know, you start seeing how things are gonna, you know, what's real and what's not. Okay. But anyway, you talk to the short sellers and I start talking to them and you know you get this information and you have to go out and you have to report it. And when you're writing seven, six columns a week, as I was, yeah. I was writing uh, five real columns and then I was writing the sixth column, which was a uh, which was a, a, a money mailbag. It was just a QA for personal finance stuff. But you're doing all this stuff, but you still have to basically confirm the information. And most of the information is in the documents. But back then, Remember, the documents weren't as easy to get as they are today. You know, you still were, there was no Edgar system in no. 19, right. 19 no. you know, in 1980,
0: 88, 89,
1: 90, 91, you know, so you're relying on people to send you documents. Um, you, there was federal filings, which was a system which you could get your documents from. You know, things were evolving back then. And you could really own the, you could own the space pre any of this stuff. And it was wonderful. You know, people would come to San Francisco for conferences and they'd see my column. And so people would want their column, the column faxed to them. Um, There was a, you know, Kramer always tells the story about how Jim Kramer, how he would have his Morgan Stanley broker fax him my column every morning. At some point, I wanted to create a fax service of my column, but I couldn't convince the, the Chronicle to go along with it. And as I, you know, people started calling me, you know, start talking to people like Cohodes and others, and I started getting a little name and, and you started hearing interesting stories. And what's interesting about it, though, of all the companies I did, I did a lot of companies, one in particular was staying out, but of all the things I did, I can tell you that almost none of them would make the grade today to be published. Because right. the one thing that did change in the late 90s is as people were able to see what clicks, how many eyeballs were you getting, mm-hmm. I can guarantee you that most of what I wrote didn't wouldn't have gotten many eyeballs because it was companies nobody ever heard of or cared about. Mm-hmm. And even the ones that were frauds or became frauds were never going to be big enough and were never going to be popular enough.
0: They are now. In the
1: vernacular of today. Yeah. There wouldn't be TV names as I call them. Right and and so i think a lot of those would not have made it and when you're writing every day and you're writing about you know the, the joke is iomega every day my the, the people i worked with were sick of reading about iomega today you'd never you'd never get there and when when clicks started to come around it was interesting to see when i was working for you know i went forward to street.com and then marketwatch you you because i made the transition from print i was one of the first main mainstream journalists to make that transition transition from print to um to online What, was, it? That what, was, was, that? what was
0: your headspace like there? Did, I mean, because there were, That's I exactly remember, I remember that there were some real big time print reporters that were just saying bloggers online. This is a fad and this is crap. And, you know, uh, nothing's ever going to happen to print media. And Two or three years later, they're bloggers. Uh, you, you said know, you were ahead of that curve. I mean, how did you see that? It wasn't bloggers back then. You didn't
1: have bloggers. In 1998, there were no bloggers. What I saw was Jim Cramer called me. I was working. By the mid-90s, I was doing multiple Well, what streets. was the street? I, well, what yeah, what happened was, toward the mid-90s, my job was my six columns a week. At the same time, uh, after there had been a strike at the Chronicle, the Chronicle also owned the NBC affiliate in San Francisco, KRO TV. I became the morning business reporter for KRO and TV. So I'd be doing that in addition to my columns. At the same time, I was writing a column for Fortune Magazine and at the same monthly. And at the same time, I would do weekly, I was taping weekly radio, v- radio vignettes for KCBS Radio. And uh, which I would have to go in, I'd have to record and I'd have to in the old days of, of editing slice with a with a with a razor blade to teach yeah. the actual tape yeah. and put it together. It was nerve wracking. Anyway, I do all this stuff. And toward the end of it, I remember I'd go to do the you know, the, the, the caro and stuff. I get up at 245 in the morning, get to the studio, leave the house at four, get to the studio a little before five, be on air at six, be at the studio from six to say, you know, nine. I'd be running in between that just so I keep some some energy up and then I'd work a full day from nine to, to five and then drive home, you know, however long it would take. I was getting kind of tired, kind of burned out and the internet was starting to it was starting to move. I had already had a site called Biz Insider on America Online back in the day when they were paying you for content. I shared the proceeds with the Chronicle. It was a different form of say syndication. And I you know, I had a, I had a producer and I had people, you know, Rev Shark, who's become a popular trading, um, uh, blogger, columnist at the street.com and has it, become a brand of his own. You know, was somebody I had on my side. I was paying people. It was kind of interesting, but I never can make the full transition. So I saw online as something where there was potential and um, but wasn't willing to take the full risk to go do it myself. So Jim started the street and I remember him calling me, telling me he was going to do this. I said, boy, what are you going to do? You know, because he was running his hedge fund. I said, what are you going to do about the elephant in the room, which is you know you're running a hedge fund, you're going to have a, a publication. And he said, "I've already we've already reached out to the regulators for that," which I thought was really smart. And when I started looking for a change after ten years, this, you know even though I had this thing going, I was looking for a change. And I con- was considering there was the Wall Street Journal or the Street. It became sort of like the Wall Street Journal was thinking of hiring me in a sort of a joint deal with CNBC or go to the street. And I sort of uh, went to see Jim and uh, clicked with him. And he offered me a pretty good deal. And I decided to make the transition. And that's how I made it. And I, I always said to myself, if I didn't do this, and it was successful, I would kick myself. And so I figured taking the risk what what's the worst that could happen and the worst is that happened that i think in retrospect the only thing i wouldn't do again is i wish i hadn't moved to new york because i could have stayed in san francisco the move was very hard on my family um but
0: and you were there for a while
1: well no i was in new york for about two years two and a half years we've done i've gone back and forth i've moved coast i've done three coast to coast trips in my life where i've gone back and forth back and forth you know where we've lived there you mean moves here yeah we've done three cross-country moves oh, and wow and when i lived there the last time uh, or the, the that time um the one thing i did do is i'd go into cnbc early in the morning for free and i'd be on tv as a contributor for free and you know i was just building my brand then we we had a show on fox with jim me adam lashinsky brenda, brenda butner gary b smith and we were in the early days of fox we had it was called the street.com on fox it was a weekend show did it for a year until Things imploded with that, and um, instead they of going to Fox. I stayed with the street.
0: How they implode? I implode What did that mean? There was
1: Jim. Jim had a. Uh, I think Jim and Roger Ailes had some words. Really? Uh, so yeah, <laughs> something along those. Good lines. for Jim. So yeah. So so the thing is, I believed that there was more to this online thing, and it was really the right. It was one of those right moves at the right time, and uh, I just moved with it, and then I was with the street for. I think six years and then had a, there was a change in editors. I knew editor and I didn't get along. He we had a little bit of a dispute. So I went across the street to market watch and spent time at market watch. And, uh, those were phenomenal people at market watch. And, uh, then went into the research business, uh, with an, another partner, uh, Debbie merits, uh, back in the 2008 period, right before things fell apart, yeah. my timing became bad. Yeah. And then, um, we had a business for a few years and, and uh, I wanted to go back to journalism. She wanted to go do a hedge fund thing. And I, I really wanted to do the CNBC thing real time. So I went to CNBC, you know, full time, moved back to the East Coast. And I went there for one contract, which was three years. And we wanted to get back to California. And here we are.
0: So your contract for CNBC what, was started in 2008 or nine? No, no, no.
1: 2010. And I was there for, so Debbie and I were in business for two years, and then um, uh, I went to do the CNBC thing. It was, uh, they would have continued with me for another three years. I was a little concerned because of my age, because after that contract, I'd be getting closer to retirement age, and I was worried that my future would be out of my control. Um, I was doing well, I think, at CNBC, uh, but I think I I plateaued there. But I think I plateaued. It's really hard doing what I did. And um, I really wanted to control my career. So I went to this back, I created a newsletter with the street, which was an absolute disaster, absolutely failed. It was a short biased newsletter, um, uh, which just did not do well. And and I refused to do some of the newslettery type things. I refused to go out and say the 10 stocks to short, I sort of put blocks on that. And that was not, you know, that didn't go over well. And then I decided let's try this research business, and here I am doing this research business, and with Don for the past six years. Don and, Vickery. Uh, Don Vickery. And yeah. yeah, and so we've been doing that, and um, chugging well, along.
0: before we get to Pacific Square, and and mm-hmm. I've read your research, and mm-hmm. you know, again, it it's great, and we'll talk about that more. But there's mm-hmm. in the early two thousands, I think you know I'm interested in hearing about how short sellers. Got their information out there or catalyzed their research kind of prior to the internet or as the internet was kind of a burgeoning thing. Like, I mean, there was an AOL thing um, that, that happened in the late 90s, and you had a couple of frauds you blew up. I mean, you dropped it, some bombs. Yeah. Uh, Arimasoft. Arimasoft. Uh, yeah. Arimasoft. Yeah. So Arimasoft, and uh, that's not your only one. You had a couple a couple of the the most
1: favorite one i mean there were look the, the way things worked back then and this is why i think activist and activist investors like you and and carson and many others became is because back then there were a few journalists who short sellers would talk to yeah uh possibly because we understood it because we um we did our work
0: it's it's a huge problem today when I talk to a reporter who's a business reporter. And doesn't and, know accounting? Accounting. They don't know business. It's tough. You don't
1: have to know accounting. You don't yeah. have to know it. I knew nothing. I I learned everything as I went. I would take, I'd be working on a a report, I would be working on a story and I'd be pulling, whether it was Howard Schillett's book, off or some book. I, you know, uh, um, uh, Charles Mulford's books. He's an accounting professor in in Atlanta. I, I would get stuck on something Mm -hmm. and try to teach myself as I went and I'd forget half of it after I did it. But just to know, I always felt it's important to be able to, um, Know what you're writing and understand or to the best of your knowledge what you're writing. And if it's too too complicated, just sort of like work around that. Um, so back then, whether it was talking to me or some folks at Barron's, um, you know, John Lang, Bill Alpert, other people like yep, that. Bill Alpert. There were, you know, different, you know, USA Today, there would be somebody, Roddy Boyd. There different reporters. Yeah, Roddy was Roddy was at the post. Yeah, where was Roddy before the post? So he came a little later. Roddy was a little later in the scheme of things, just a little bit. Yeah. Um. And so, but he was there. We were all doing different things, variations on a theme. I was doing my own thing regionally uh, for a number of those years. And back in the in the if you go back, but I have to tell you, if you go. It really was before the early 2000s, because if you go back to the early 1990s, yeah. that's where it really was starting to kick into high gear. Before the early 1990s, Dorfman had that to himself. Right. He pretty much, Dan Dorfman, you know, was at the Wall Street Journal where he did it um, in the Hurt on the Street column. And then he went to USA Today and, you know, he was at Dow Jones Newswire. So he had a lot of that. And then,
0: every investor wanted his ear, short or long.
1: Everyone wanted his ear. So- then I came and did it my way, we all did it our ways. And um, and I, I mean, one of the best stories I had, because a lot of these were really in the, um, the 1990s, the very best story I had, without question. The one that it will always be, everybody has one, will be a company called MediaVision. Mm-hmm. And MediaVision was a sound card company that was the, is, is back in the early 90s. Montgomery took it public, Montgomery Securities. And there had already been a company taken public, probably by Robbie Stevens, I forget by whom, but it was called Creative Labs, Creative Laboratories. And so you always had the follow-on offering, right? So the the company that didn't get out was the second one, and it was going to be a little more aggressive. And we went out, and I had a situation where, you know, you got the tips. The original tips came from the short sellers, but this is classic what the activist investors see today, or the activist, uh, you know, researchers and people like that see today. I would be public on a story like that. And I would go out and always, so I always call this, you know, deconstructing, reconstructing. That's mm-hmm. what I did as a journalist. Is yeah. Someone would come to you and share information, but now you have to vet the information. Right. And what was difficult about Media Vision, is that the CEO was a source of mine. Oh. He was a source of mine when we talked about companies like Creative Labs. Oh. And he was a chatty guy. And yeah. I liked him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's hard when you start hearing things, um, about, about it, someone you now may have to call up and say, hey, t- did you really do this? And I kind of ignored it for a while, but then I was talking to the analyst from, well, I think he was Robbie Stevens, who told me he was in the CEO's office and the CEO is making an appointment have the wax, to have the, the hair taken off his back with wax, to have his back wax. Oh, uh,
0: he's guilty of something.
1: And I I said, there's a story here. Yeah. <laughs> there's a story here.
0: Yeah. So
1: I, with that, I started to look into and get more serious about the company. And the CEO obviously started getting angry with me. Now, remember, I'm publishing on the front of the business section of the San Francisco Chronicle every day. Yeah. And I could come out every day writing about this stuff.
0: Right. Or writing about
1: this company, Media Vision. Right. And writing about
0: it. Bad move on his part to piss you off.
1: Well, I started writing about it. And um, it's interesting because once I wrote about it, I'll never forget the stock went up the day I wrote about it. He called me up and he said, Aha, your short seller friends are wrong. The stock is going up. I hope they go home and beat their wives. That's really what he said. Wow. And and I said, and I thought to myself, no. The, the stock is going up because the stock is going up. It means nothing else. And what happened was, is I, the more I wrote about it, the more people came out of the wood. Yep. Which is something yep. that it was so important. But I have to tell you, being the cautious guy I am, I was always nervous. Mm-hmm. I'm a nervous guy. I was always nervous that someone was going to try to dupe me. Mm -hmm. So one guy called me and claimed he had documents and he had, this guy had said former employee of the company, he had been fired, but he had documents Mm. and he was one of those guys who's a young guy. They're taking me down. Yeah. I'm going to take them down. And he comes to my office and I'm nervous. He's got a gun. So we have a, there's a glass walled, conference room in the reception area i right. said to everybody i'm going to meet this guy don't yeah. know what's going to happen yeah. so i said i said uh let's um just know where i am know what's going on he comes in he gives me the documents these are amazing documents but of course you have to worry they're being doctored i'm worried that's the kind of situation where Mm. where he's being set up to give it to me so this is stuff you have to think about is he giving it to me so i'll publish it and then he can sue me then the ceo can sue me for libel how do you determine this right and what he gave me basically was information that showed it was information from the actual company i was able to piece through to show that the dot that the revenue they were recognizing Mm was being recognized on products Uh that hadn't yet been manufactured because the products were still on a boat that was coming from China. And that was the crux of the story. And it was wonderful information. And when I talked to him after I published, I was able to confirm the information. I was able to piece it together. It was real. And we published well, it and then i think that, i think that's legal
0: now <laughs> <laughs> I, think yeah. I, I think a lot of companies do that now you know once you yeah. place the order they book the revenue i mean it's uh jeez
1: there was no there was nothing booked on
0: these these were these were these were they
1: were recognizing the revenue before the products were there was there was nothing there were no orders for the products they were they were ah. trying to create the orders this was a company where the ceo was famously known to on the last day of they the were recognizing
0: order, revenue on on sitting inventory
1: There are no, there was no sitting inventory. There was no inventory. So the CEO was famous for at the end of the quarter helping load the tractors, Mm -hmm. closing the door on the back of the truck, hitting it, saying, There you go, shipped as it went to the other side of the parking lot. And that's that kind of stuff was going on all the time. And while some people may say that's appropriate, we all know that's no, very aggressive. So anyway, those kind of things. So that's how it worked back then. And that's what I was able to do. And I was able to create a career doing that or keep my career going doing that and evolve my career. And into the 2000s, it continued with different stories like Arimasoft, uh, which was a multi-country story. Yeah. Um, which, but again, a company that might not make the grade today for people to pay attention. I mean, I can tell you that when I was writing a lot about Overstock.com back in the day, when I could actually see the eyeballs that clicked on the Overstock stories, it was a very controversial story, CEO Patrick Byrne and all that stuff. They had some of the lowest eyeball counts. Really? They were surprisingly low. Again, teaching me that some of these things where the short sellers would get very caught into their world of their own little universe, yeah. Outside of that, sometimes there was a, you know, and that's why some of these stories don't make it today. And I think that's why a lot of these stories will never see the day, their day in print, because no one's going to read them or they're not going to be enough people to read them for somebody to point to the reporter to say, what are you spending your time on this for? Yeah. When there's something out there that's far more important and compelling.
0: I don't think the Overstock story as, I mean, rich as it is, complete with the, you know, the, the, the Sith Lord it was controlling <laughs> right. all the, uh, all the short sellers and, uh, and Patrick Byrne on an open conference call just mid sentence explaining that he's not on cocaine. <laughs> I mean that's, that's a great throwaway line for uh, investors. It's important to know that though. Uh yeah, it, it is important to know, but I don't think that could happen today, because at that point there was much more skepticism towards critical research than there is now. Uh, and and critics were not taken as seriously. There really wasn't a Carson block. I know there was Andrew left was probably the first one that was kind of really publishing this stuff and and taking the taking the lawsuits. Yeah. And he probably could have got some eyeballs on this. But I mean, this guy got away, Patrick Byrne, with suing everybody and how long did that did that last like 5 years you were involved in that lawsuit weren't
1: you i was one of the front and center people i was i was not sued by him i was um but through him i believe is was i think it's as a result of him that the sec came and you know uh subpoenaed me jim cramer and carol mond who was then at uh, dow jones and uh, we received these subpoenas when Chris Cox, the head of the SEC was in the hospital yeah and it was all done the way it wasn't supposed to have been And you were you were a reporter
0: press. at that point. you weren't a researcher you you were you were a reporter strictly uninvested in any of it and the SEC basically sends you a letter saying produce all of your sources and your documents, which is pretty unheard of. you I mean it's a pretty History serious thing that's got to happen and they got a lot of blowback. And eventually the boss got out of the hospital.
1: Yeah, well, well, he got out of the hospital and they and I'll tell you, Jim and I went on Jim's show. I was working for Dow Jones at the time and uh, we had a phenomenal uh, libel lawyer uh, there. And um, and I went on Jim's show that night and Jim on the show famously on Mad Money, he uh, he ripped up the subpoena on live TV, which just. Classic yeah. gym and it got everybody all, you know, all, uh, you know, people were saying, how could he do that? It's so disrespectful. But the fact is what the SEC did and the way they did it was also disrespectful. Yeah. And it, it basically was trying to ram something through that obviously backfired on them. And um, but the SEC, you've got to understand if you're dealing with short sellers, people always think you're on the take. And back even in the 90s with the with the flashbacks, I'll never forget. I was walking out. I think I told you the story on the phone the other day. I was walking out of a restaurant in San Francisco. And in Union Square, and I saw the head of the SEC sitting at the bar and, you know, he's having his lunch. And I said, hey, Gladwin, how you doing? He says, hey, I got to talk to you. Hearing some stuff about you and the fishbacks. Yeah. They always call me the fishbacks. I said, whatever, you know, call me, calls me with a lawyer on the phone. And they're trying to make the kind of allegations that I'm in bed with guys doing something that I shouldn't be doing. So I ended up thinking about it. You know, he said, you'll be hearing back from us. I said, well, you have to talk to our attorneys or whatever. Chronicle said, just write a column about it. Mm -hmm. So Chronicle being the edgy place it was, I wrote a column about this guy. Exactly what I told you, what happened coming out with the fishbacks and all this stuff. Never heard from him again. Um, But they always think everyone always thought that everyone thinks the journalists were on the take. And while there were a few bad apples out there. Yeah. Just doing your job. And if you can deconstruct it and reconstruct it, it's. It's yours
0: to have. It, that's exactly right. And and circling back to the subpoena you got from the SEC, they eventually backed off. Chris Cox, you know, said,
1: "Yeah, it went away." Know, yeah,
0: uh, I was in the hospital. Uh, mistake. They made a mistake. They didn't check with me. Forget about it. Uh, but yeah, it's a tough spot that they're in. And people have said to me before, you know, it, it must be great for you when you go meet with the SEC. On Longway Petroleum or LNL Energy or whatever, where you have these this video and empirical evidence that's just perfectly does their job for them, that puts the case together for them. That must be a great day for the SEC. And I say, no, that's a good day. A great day is when I've done all of that and I've made a mistake too, and they get two cases for one, because nobody on the other side of the table gets a pass. Everybody has to do their job and do it honestly. You can be both guilty in their eyes. And I think that's the way it should be. But you always have to be on your guard uh, with them. And I think that's a good thing, actually.
1: Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I've never been um, on that side of it. And uh, Well, you were like almost there. That way. <laughs> almost there. Hey, look, <laughs> yeah. let me tell you something. With, with Arimasoft, which was a company you were talking about, yeah, they... And that was an interesting situation because that company, if I'm remembering the company's right, because there's a blur on some of them, they had the CEO in London, the CFO in LA and the chairman in Greece. Anyway, that's always a sign for, mm-hmm. that's always a potential problem. Um, but I think that uh, that's a case where they, they were going to sue me. They actually were going to file a lawsuit. They filed a lawsuit that was delivered. It was, I was working uh, at the street, I think at the time. But what's interesting is that the day of or the day after the lawsuit, which was filed against me, some hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera, the SEC swooped in and literally raided them. And they just ended up, all the fraud that was alleged was proven to be the case.
0: Well, that worked out. That must Ooh, that have been didn't nice. Work out. Yeah. So you met some real characters in your time. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. on the, on the short selling side. And we do have a few of those listeners. I mean, you're talking Mark Cahotis in the early mm-hmm. days, David Rocker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh I, I, guess Andrew left probably in the early days too, right?
1: Andrew was not, Andrew wasn't really a source at the time because he was doing other things. Maybe I, I don't remember exactly when he started out, um, doing his thing. Uh,
0: we started out with a site called stock lemons.
1: Yeah. Stock lemon. It was yeah.
0: good. Yeah. Stock lemon. Yeah. yeah. It was it's it's a, it's a early two thousands. Uh, and, and, the, and you had the fetchbacks and, you know, these guys would just basically they to get out their research, they would call you and try to get you interested in it. And -hmm. you would do like Bill Alpert or Roddy or whatever what you're saying you're doing. You take it in and you have to recreate it yourself or it doesn't exist.
1: That's it. No. And there were, you know, the guys at Kingsford, um, you know, Mike Mike Wilkins. You know, there are a lot of different people out there. But I think what you what you had to do is look, people would say they're using you. They're right. They're using me. And well, I was using- uh, you're,
0: yeah, you're using us too. I'm but,
1: trying to get information. Yeah. They're trying to get it out. And yeah. But here's the thing. Look, I always said, show it to me in the documents. Mm-hmm. So if it's publicly, when you're especially when you're doing day-to-day, a lot of these are items. They're small things mm-hmm. that might lead to something bigger. But right. most of them are small things. They're incrementally additive mm-hmm. to the entire story. Right. It's something that is important to see. But there are plenty of times a short seller would say, hey, look at that change back in the day when it mattered when there was a change in an SEC filing, yeah. a change in a risk factor. Yeah. You'd say, look at that change in that risk factor. And then you'd go and you'd do the research and you'd find out, no, wait a second. That's not a change. They just moved it. And the right. redlining didn't catch that that was moved. You just saw that it wasn't there anymore. Because you know when you're doing redlining or you're going through a redline document, you really have to be, especially back then it was a little harder, but yeah. you really have to make sure that it just hasn't been, you know, you have programs that could around. do
0: it for you today and for a long time, but not back then. No, so no, I guess no, you no. probably had kind of a, a hierarchy uh, in your mind of the people that called you that you could, okay, this is something huh. I'll spend my time looking into, or I don't know this person, this person's been wrong in the past, and I don't know if I'm going to waste my time.
1: And you're very good. You have, you you had, you exactly, you're very perceptive. You have the core of the people you enjoy talking to. There are some people you just enjoy talking to. There there's a connection. That will always be the case. No, I don't care what anyone says, whoever whoever they are. Yeah. We all have people we like talking to. Right. And then there's the, so there's the core of people you talk to and they, that do, some of them might even do a better job of telling stories. So I'll say. That matters a lot. Well, you get somebody like, like a, like a Cohodas.
0: Yeah. He's a great storyteller.
1: He is the best storyteller of, of all the people I talked to. Mm-hmm. He probably was the best at telling a story and synthesizing it to the point that at least there was a hook there. Now you had to mm-hmm. get beyond the hook, mm-hmm. but he was very good at that. Some people tell stories that start in the middle. And when it starts in the middle, I only have so much time. You know, yes. we're all busy. So you had your core, then you had the other people, then you had the, the third ring, and right. then you had the people that would come in that you'd never heard of. And this was where the interesting thing would come in. So you've got all this stuff going on. I got these piles of papers on my desk. I got all these papers. Yeah. And often somebody would, would come in with an interesting idea that would just take more time for me to get to. And I would put it over here because I didn't have time. And then you'd wait it out. You'd wait it out and maybe the thing would happen and you'd go, oh my gosh, I wish I had talked to that person. It's like an investor, right? The ideas you missed. Because I know you what were... you mean.
0: I do. Mm-hmm.
1: And then and then that person now has credibility with me. Yeah. Now I pull that, now I'm calling that person every week saying, what do you got, what do you got, what do you got? But I'll tell you one interesting one that I missed, that I looked at what? Chanos calls me, Jim Chanos calls me one day. I've heard of him. And we're talking, he's a, he's a short seller, you've heard yeah. of him? Yeah, yeah. He calls me, he tells me about Enron. Yeah, And he tells me about Enron and I'm busy and it's com- what he's talking about is complicated and my brain doesn't synthesize mm-hmm. complicated very well. It takes time for me to think about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I put it over here on the side where there's a little bit of dust. Mm-hmm. And about three, four weeks later, I take a look at it and really start thinking about it. And I think it's pretty interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Call him up. You know that Enron you talked to me about? Says, I'm sorry, I'm I'm already talking to somebody else about it.
0: In comes Bethany McLean.
1: There goes Bethany. Hats off to Bethany, and 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 and. um Yeah. And yeah.
0: And that could have been you. You could have been Bethany.
1: <laughs> no, I wouldn't be, be. There's one Bethany McLean. Yeah. She's. Yeah. Thankfully, I think the, the the reality is, if you want to think about how the universe works, yeah, it went to Bethany because she. Probably did a substantially better job than I would have been able to
0: do. Well, that's that's very humble of you. And uh, and look, as it turned out, she did a great job, and you did a great job on some other things. But did you, when when Chanos called you, he really wasn't Jim Chanos back then either, right? I mean, oh, like, he was
1: Jim Chanos back then. He was he. I met Jim at a I met Jim at a Montgomery Securities conference back in the early days before Montgomery banned me from attending those conferences. Um, And I was banned from attending those conferences.
0: I've been there too. (laughs) It turns out I can't get into a Roth conference.
1: Oh, you can't get into it. Neither can I. So
0: (laughs) We'll get bowling shirts.
1: (laughs) I actually was, I went to a Roth conference that while ago, not about, I was actually now about seven years ago. And, um, and it was hard to get me. I, when I was working at the street, I went there for marketing purposes and it was hard for the the CEO of the company to get them to admit me because they were so because of my reputation.
0: Um, Byron Roth but, would, couldn't get them to to admit you. They,
1: they didn't want. They did not want me there because of who I was. I had free reign. I went there. I ended up going. And I had a great time. I met yeah. Dusty Rhodes. But it's it's a um,
0: oh, they're great conferences. A, they're a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, there was, but but it was they didn't want me there. Yeah. Um, but jim when i met jim he was talking about uh i think he was talking about first executive back in the time it was an insurance company uh-huh. uh and i was first talking to him back then and it was uh so i sort of started i knew him and i would knew who he was because he was famous from his reputation with baldwin united and um again i was trying to know who the short sellers were at mm-hmm. that point in time and was trying to get up to speed on everybody. And he, his first executive call was a very good one. It was dealing with a CEO. His name was Fred Carr. I think it was Fred Carr. And um, he was, uh, he was, he had already building his reputation out and uh, was a good person to chat with.
0: But really exploded on Enron. I mean, that you have yeah. to say. Yeah, Enron
1: was the big thing, but he was yeah. someone before that. Okay. And, you know, he knew other people I knew. And it was just one of those things. Yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that is really cool. So, you know, out of all the sources who are now short sellers or whatever, who's the biggest um, character that you met?
1: They're all characters because they? they sell, they, they short sell the people who are genuine short sellers. Um, all suffer the same genetic malady. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they and the journalists, the journalists that sort of have sort of talked to them over the years. I, I mean, I said, look, I sit back and I wonder, I used to, I used to say to, to one of them, I, I learned a long time ago when you call a short seller, you don't call them and say, hey, how you doing? You just say, hi, mm. because you never ask, how are you doing? And I remember talking to uh, to uh, uh, Dave Shally, who was a very, very good guy uh, at Kingsford. And sometimes I'd say to him, I'd say, why do you do this for a living? I mean, you're smart enough to not have to beat your head against the wall. Because I see these people beating their heads against the wall. They're right on the, they're right on the facts. But they're fighting, they were fighting the inertia of the market companies. Yeah, the market and the too. market
0: and the investors. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's, that's a hard game to live. And I think it, I think it, beca- I think it creates a level of dysfunction and you have to live with dysfunction when you're doing that for a living. And I think that it's very, that takes a toll on people. It can't take a toll on people. When you're right, there's nothing better than being right. Now, I, again, I'm removed. I'm not the guy who has the money. Well, there the
0: there is something better than being right. There definitely is. There's being right, and the rest of the market agrees with you is better. That's what I meant. Yeah, when you're <laughs> right and
1: it's proven to be right, that's a great. That's a that is a great day. Yeah, and, and, and hopefully, and
0: hopefully, you're still invested by then and not squeezed out.
1: Well, the problem with the market is, I've often tweeted it is, um, you know, it's just so humbling. And anyone who mm-hmm. has great hubris finds a way of being humbled. And in and, and that's the reality of the market.
0: If you're and it long I don't care enough. who you
1: are. I don't care if you're if you're a participant like you are, if you're an investor or if you're a researcher slash journalist as I am, you have the same feelings and you still want to be right. No one wants to be wrong. And it's the difference between an investor and a, and a journalist, or in my case, an, an ex-journalist, is you still have your credibility on the line. Right. You, still have, you, you still have the sense that you're putting all this time into work and putting it together. And you, know, you want to be right. Nobody doesn't want to Go through all that and then be proven wrong, but of course there are plenty of dead ends. You, how many stories have I worked on, or how many ideas have have, have I been wrong on, or were, have I been working on where you just couldn't get across the finish line? Right, that's also very frustrating.
0: Well, I've got an idea about like, you know, people, I specifically my wife when 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 it's a big fight and uh, and you know China's coming after you, your government's coming after every. Why does it have to be you? Why? You know, why isn't it somebody smarter, I think, is what she's saying. And I can't disagree with her. But at a certain point in time, once you make that switch, because I was never a short seller, I always look at the long side. And I I see it from the investor's perspective. The American dream is built on positivity, on belief, uh, on reliability. And you want to you want to have all those things. And who is this person to tell me that what I believe is wrong? And it's a very difficult hurdle to get over. And you need that reputation that you have and built over a a career obsessing over every person you spoke to that somebody's trying to get over on you. Somebody's lying to you. You've got to make sure it's right, because if you're wrong, that's your credibility. And it's the same thing with a short seller. Not so much a long investor who's writing about, you know, the positive things could happen in a company, because when they're wrong... They're just overly optimistic, and that's okay. Uh, Taking out the pump and dumps, obviously, those are something completely different. But when you're wrong as a business journalist or, you know, even a short seller, if I can make the comparison, you lose your reputation and you lose your currency um, going forward. And I think the reason that there are activist shorts now where there weren't maybe in the 90s, 80s, and early 2000s is I don't really know of very many business reporters that are left. I mean, I have Bill Alpert's out there. And I think he does a fine job. Um, you know, Gretchen Morgenson. I mean, like there are a few out there that are left.
1: They're 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 left. Don't, I think you have there's there are great business journalists out there, but they're also operating within the confines of their organizations, and they're 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 operating. They're working within, for lawyers. You know,
0: That's it. It's all tortious interference bullshit. No, no,
1: no, no. Remember what I said. It's about today. Remember, newsrooms have been shrunk down. You don't have the same, um, you know, puffery out there to go after. When I say puffery, let me rephrase that. The same extra bodies out there to do bandwidth stories, perhaps that might work. There's limited amount of people doing, you know, doing the work less people than there were, fewer people than there were, and I think that as a result of that, it just creates, you know, there's a, there's a different type of a story they're going to go after and they're going to spend time on.
0: But the lack of bandwidth that's put on critical research of companies uh, at yeah. the at the at the newspaper level or at the big media level has created a vacuum uh, that that we fill along that that could be filled by investment bank analysts, in my opinion, but is not.
1: <laughs> no, it can't be because investment bank analysts do too much. I tell you, if you're if you're covering more than 10 companies yeah. and even 10 companies, yeah. you know, we do eight to eight to 12 or whatever, it's a push to really keep up on them and to really know them and to really every quarter really want to do a, a significant review of the numbers. Remember, an analyst, at a, an investment banking firm can has to, they put out the, on an earnings come out, they put out something right away. And then the next day they put out maybe their junior analyst or the the senior, who knows, they put out something else. It's done. It can take us on certain companies, two, three, four days for Don to go through the numbers. Forensically, Linda to go through the numbers fundamentally, me, Linda and Don to all go through. But my, you know, my my, my point, my
0: point is, that what they do should be so important that if it took a couple extra days to be right and to be fluid and to be accurate that, yeah, the street doesn't want it. They don't, they, they want nine, nine and a half out of 10 uh, buy recommendations to a sell. And that's what we've continually got from them. And it's really not a business anymore. It really isn't that that gives like, I'm reading your research back to Pacific Square, what you're doing now. And they look a lot like, maybe more than mine or, or, or some of the other short sellers out there, they look a lot like an analyst, an investment bank analyst report, except there's so much rich detail. and There's so much more accurate. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, why can't every investment bank analyst report be this detailed and this accurate? Why?
1: Well, remember, let's, let's give them the benefit of, let's give them their due on industries and on broader reports um the sell side analysts have been typically do a very good job they they can give you an overview if because that's where they spend their time they'll spend their time on a 50-page initiation where you can find a nugget um or on an industry on a full industry if you really mm-hmm. want to get the lowdown, they'll they can do some very good work on that but that's not making a call that's basically yeah that's doing re- just yeah. straight research yeah. on something. And I think where you ha- where I would take, look, there are analysts out there who have made some very gutsy calls and who have been uh, very contrarian. They're willing to put a sell on it. You know them, I know them, and they've taken a lot of heat for it. And sometimes I'll see an analyst who or i lost their them. job. Well, they've lost, some have lost their jobs, but sometimes when they're right. So I've talked to analysts over time who put sells on stocks. And then they're proven to be right. Mm-hmm. So I call them and I say, "Man, your phone must be ringing off the hook. Nah. People must be congratulating you and saying they wish they had paid attention to you." And you know, what they say, "They say
0: no, no. We're, we're not, we're not going to get that banking business." Well, are you talking about like from from the investor community that would be congratulating yeah. their clients? Okay, okay they're well, clients. okay, fair enough. But like, none of them are really on Twitter or have a public persona where some
1: do. some do i know one in particular go look at michael pachter michael pachter has been one of the sort of most contrarian guys out there and he's you know he was the i'm I'm thinking for the most part you
0: know like i mean almost every company that that i'm looking at you're like i'm who's the analyst okay let's go ahead and read the research fine just just so we say we've read everything uh we very rarely get anything out of it and you go look for their public persona it doesn't exist
1: you don't know well it probably doesn't because they're compliance departments are yeah. basically saying you're not getting anywhere near that, at least with your name, who knows
0: who's doing what private. Right. They're anonymous, which is ironic. Right. On Twitter. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, look, I just, I just think that whole investment banking side, you know, being detached from the analyst is complete BS and that they're going to lose the business. And this is, this is what's broken in that model. Uh, if but this is what's so amazing, Dan, Yeah, is that, all of
1: these years, think about it. You know how many years, how many decades
0: we've yeah. been having this discussion? I know. And nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. <laughs> the last time I heard that there was going to be any kind of substantive change was, was after the crash in 2008. People were like, you know what? This is BS, man. Like, you know, over nine out of 10 buys to sells. Something's got to change. And nothing changed. And the best clients do get more information. Let's face it; that's that's the way it goes. There's that whisper line, uh, that's existed, you know, ever since you've been writing too. But mm-hmm. if you wanna you wanna talk about how to fix things, that's one way of doing it. Um, I don't know that it will. Therefore, I will still have a job, uh, and so will you. So, looking at Pacific Square, I you know I was reading over your research. Like I said, it was it, it's great stuff, and you're doing like ten companies a year. We try to do, we try to do,
1: we say we'll do eight to 15. The reality is if we do 10 or 11, depends on the year, depends on the type of name, depends on how much work is involved. Each each piece takes a lot out of you, as you know, from doing what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we publish weekly, but we, for big calls, big, big calls or the, what we consider big calls. Other than this year, this year has been, you know, an embarrassment. Um, when I say an embarrassment, I I actually I don't
0: know about that. I mean, like it's well, it's, it's gone actually, against you. I look at your track record for the last five years since you've been doing this, and you got a winning track record over the last five mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Um, there's there are much more many more wins than than losses and a few pushes in there. Uh, so doing that on the short side and really this is a five year bull run. I mean, it's been ten, but you're doing it into a bull market is my point. Have you ever thought about you know, you know, dipping a toe into the activist short pond. I mean, you've got a name, a pretty big one. And uh, yeah, I'm reading your reports and the, they're they're less salacious than most short seller reports that I've read, which I think is very refreshing. Actually, it's more to the heart of the problem than counting how many times you can say the word fraud in the first paragraph. Um uh, and I think there's a there's a spot we don't for that. See, we don't,
1: you, won't, you won't see CSA fraud in the first, second, third, or tenth paragraph.
0: Probably not. Um, I <laughs> I mean I think I think if you found one, you might.
1: Well, I don't know. You know, it depends what the what the libel attorneys would say. I thought it was very interesting. You had this uh, this this very good podcast, this two hours with Soren. Um I do not know him. I'd like to know him. The good guy. Uh, and he he made these comments. It was a very lucid interview, and he made these comments about the salaciousness versus the non salaciousness. And I know I've had specific conversations with with Carson Block about this, why there has to be salaciousness, why there doesn't you know, why you have to be bombastic versus not being bombastic. Right. How have I ever thought I have thought about it? Um, I don't think I know. I don't know. I don't know. You know. We've never really discussed it with anyone. I don't know who the players are in that market. Everyone does it a little differently. Uh Um, You know, sometimes you wonder if your names were catalyzed, if if they're actually people would pay attention, because sometimes you see these these names we do, and you do these really good work. Mm -hmm. You know it's good, because when you think about how we operate, you have the right, we're a right brain, left brain type of a firm. So Mm -hmm. you have the forensic in my business partner, Don Vickery, who co-founded Grading Analytics, and I think is really one of the Forensic genius is out there. His brain is sort of wired that way. He's got artificial intelligence; it, it, it operates like that. He's not an excitable guy. he He thinks the things his way, and he sees it. He sees it the way many people can't see it. And our our analyst Linda, who used to run run for twenty years, was a short biased manager or co manager of a fund and is more of a fundamental analyst. And then you have me as the writer and they're doing research when there's research to be done that we actually pick up the phone and make a call, um, make calls. And I write the stuff, so it's in my voice. And then we all go through it and hash it out. And we're always amazed when we do this thing, the three of us, we say, I sometimes say, how does one person do this? Because it's so hard and we're finding, you know, Linda will question Don's numbers and he will see something that he doesn't see and on the 10th Read through, we'll all find stuff that doesn't make sense. But would we do activist work? You know, part of me misses being out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Part of me likes not being out there. Um, y- you know, I liked busting companies when I could. I like being part of the process, and I think I do it as well as any. But but then Dan, yep. I think about how, you know, I think about the ones I didn't get right. Um, I always think about that.
0: Well, good. But yeah, That's I healthy. Think about it, uh, but it, I don't know. It's healthy. It keeps yeah. you honest. Keeps you on your toes. And I mean, look, I, you know, I don't know what you mean necessarily by I didn't get right. Um, you know, there, it, you're in a no-win situation, right? Because, you know, if, if everything you say is, is you know, right and accurate and it's great research and the stock goes up, well, then I guess you got it wrong, right? Uh, and if, if you do all that and the stock goes down day one, uh, and goes back up the next day. You got it wrong. And there's all kinds of reasons where people tell you you got it wrong. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the way you look at your research right now is the way you would look at it if you were an activist short. You know, did I put the best good faith effort I have into this? Did I write everything down, everything that I wrote down? Did I believe it to be 100 percent true and and did let the chips fall where it may? whatever anybody else believes, right. at some point you've got to just set it down.
1: Well, and I think that's the key thing. When we do our work, do we think we're right? We always think we're right. Or right. we think we're on the trail of something. I think that um, that you know, there are different ways people interpret numbers. And sometimes you're just early. And you know, obviously yeah. some people view that as wrong. We don't make trading calls. So when we do our work, we put it out when we think there's something good. And we think there's a decline possibility of at least 30%. And over 12 months, that's the way we think. And we're wired. And then, you know, we're not we're not looking for frauds. You stumble on frauds. Right. Uh, we don't go after battlegrounds. We don't go after a name. Somebody will come to us and say, why aren't you doing Tesla? And we'll say, why? Why would we waste our time on Tesla? What can you absolutely add? Absolutely nothing. To add <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. So people would ask me the same you thing. Uh, why aren't you in the Tesla? Tra- what, what am I going to add that Chano hasn't put in there?
1: there's there's nothing once it's out in the public domain we see it as a as something unless you can advance it right. and you want to continue fighting the battle i like getting in there and outing things that people don't know about even right. if it's a legitimate company and you're talking about something that people just uh missed right. and 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 again you, you know you look at a company let's let's talk about a company like mohawk which we
0: yeah, good which report is the most you boring wrote.
1: company known to mankind. What's
0: that? It was a good report you wrote on it. It was very, very accurate. Thanks. And, and and what did it go down? Like fifty percent?
1: It went down quite a bit, yes. Yeah, and yeah. it was it was interesting because it was one report we received so much pushback on because everybody wanted to own the stock. Now this is they also we want to own it, we don't want to short it. And this is gonna be this is a classic company that is where the company has made so much money for people over the years, they really wanted to. Believe in management, and they—they this was one of those safe stocks that sat on a shelf, and people stopped researching inside the fund, and they missed a major change going on inside the industry, and the company missed it. The company misexecuted in a huge way, but in the process, what's fascinating—you know—we talk about we don't go after performance. There was a very interesting class action lawsuit filed a few months ago against Mohawk, alleging some things that were just, if they're true, if they're true. I read that. It's quite fascinating. It's quite fascinating. Right. And it shows how, if it's true, I would say, and I stress, if it's true, it would show that management or people inside the culture of the company to continue to show the results became more aggressive. And that gets into the line of what Chanos would call, or Bethany McLean actually Uh, Framed it with 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 Enron, and that is legal fraud, and that would be that they push things, and now you have a DOJ, SEC investigation of the company. And what's interesting about it, no one's written it; it's not in the public domain. All of this has happened below the radar, other than perhaps a paper in Knoxville. Or you know somewhere nearby where the company is um, is his headquartered in, in, in outside of Atlanta uh, or in, in Tennessee. And you were
0: you were ahead of all that two years ago. Yeah, we
1: were ahead of it, pointing out just there were issues and what my partner noticed. And this was what's interesting. He noticed things in the numbers. He would never use the F word, but things that would suggest that there was something untoward going on. He could see right. it because he likes to see these low, it's very slow gradual changes in certain metrics. They give, he feels they're much more compelling than the sudden change in receivables or something like that. He likes to see something that's evolving over time. It shows the trend and it actually shows the potential for the fraud to begin if there's, you know, the alleged fraud to begin. In this case, he could see what was going on with uh, the numbers early on. And he could see that there there was something that would raise a big red flag for him. And when the lawsuit came out it was like flat bells were go- right. whistles were going off yep. and he was able to say well what they're alleging was showing up in the numbers two years ago right but no one's really paying attention to that and our view is you know no one's writing about this so these are the kind of names that are not getting no one's talking you know they're not exciting they're not sexy
0: right
1: and that's that's kind of an interesting situation now the stock went down 50 percent and since Obviously recovered with home home building stocks uh, for the right reason.
0: But we'll see what happens with the regulatory action and, and where it ends up. Well, that's that is that's some interesting stuff. And if people want to subscribe to your research, it's Pacific Square and they can maybe reach out to you and become a, uh, a subscriber.
1: We always are interested in subscribers. It's 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 the nature of the beast of what we do.
0: But you are a little picky about who they are too, though. You're, you don't just let anybody subscribe either. No, we don't. We yeah. have
1: we're very we have a fairly limited pool of subscribers, yeah. and it's uh, it's it just you you want the right fit because right. we do things a little I think differently than other folks and. You know, you're just trying to to, 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 in the end, help people either avoid losing money or, in theoretically, making money. Um, that's what we do on a good day.
0: All right. So, Herb, tell us what's your, what's your prediction? Just to take us out here of 2021. Uh, what does it look like for you as you're moving into 2021? I'm not going to hold you down to any kind of, you know, what percent up, what percent down, or whatever. But what is a macro outlook?
1: I don't think you can have, look, the macro outlook is uh, we don't do macro outlooks. I can only guess like the next person out there Uh, and everyone I talk to who supposedly is smart is as confused as I am and you are about what might happen. What I do think, though, just pulling it in a little bit to a micro, a little more micro, is that the excesses are, are occurring. And you're seeing managements now that I believe become not just complacent. But they become emboldened by their stock prices. And you know, we always like to go to the proxy to see what the motive is, because that's the motive in the proxy. If you can check it out and find where the where the uh what the bonus structure is or whatever they're guided by. And right, right now, managements, they're gonna have to somehow try to justify the prices of their stock. And investors are currently giving them a long lead time yeah. and cutting them a lot of slack. But you all know how, we all know how that changes and how patience wears thin. And I think there's a point where with some of these companies, patience will wear thin. And I think, you know, you only get the COVID, you know, the cover of COVID, as I now call it, for so long. Right. And companies have to start performing and stocks have certainly overshot any level of valuation, not that valuation matters now. So what do I think is going to happen? <laughs> I don't know. No. If interest rates remain low. We are. Uh, we all know what we think might happen, but I think um, I I know what I'm worried about.
0: What are you worried about?
1: I'm worried that the impact of the Robinhood crowd. Uh-huh. I I don't I don't diminish the impact, and I don't and I I realize I've been around long enough to know that there are parts of that that may stick. What I worry about is that everybody has been pushed into the market. And it's right. gone to and is now treating the brokerage accounts right. like a bank.
0: And re- and a retirement that's what works. And a retirement account.
1: retirement account. But but I'm talking about even young people who put all their monies there and it's not in a bank. I don't know what the and if it's not
0: Where where, where are they gonna put it, Herb? Because especially when well, you're talking about young people who probably don't mm-hmm. have all that much money, right? Um or you look at the poor and disenfranchised, uh, they're not going to invest in the stock market right away, but they can't put it in a bank because it costs them money. It costs people money to have a bank account now rather than the bank paying you. I
1: understand that. I I understand that. But my concern is if there's a pro- prolonged decline in the market. Oh, I totally prolonged agree. decline. I agree that the, the economic impact of that, not just yeah. from the decline and from everything that it reflects, but just from people losing losing the buying power that they had that helped fuel certain things, you know, during the COVID period, the surprising spending that we saw on certain things through stimulus and other things. And, I, and now I think people feeling emboldened that it's so easy to make money in the stock market. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I have to tell you one thing, Dan, we've been around long enough to know that historically, when there have been periods where people didn't want to talk about shorts and when even when i was uh, many years ago in the early 90s it started where people would say i don't want to talk to you because i talked to you and you mention a company and the stock goes straight up because you know that was when the momentum was building and they would get caught up in that and i used to get depressed about it early on i got depressed about it and then i realized oh wait a second this is an inflection point and for years, those were inflection points. Yeah. The only difference now is the inflection points last a very short amount of time. Right. The the quote CNBC markets in turmoil may not even may not, may not even get to one night of them now because right. the markets can be in turmoil for a day and then it's all forgotten. But when it happens, don't ever forget how people feel when they start losing money. Ugh. Even if it's a paper loss, even right. if it's for a few days, right. they freak out.
0: They freak out.
1: And if it's any longer than a few days, right. That's what I worry about. And we all saw them. We, we all remember the 99, but I don't want to make those parallels because everybody says the world is different since then, then, then and this since time what? is different. So what well, is,
0: is it different since when?
1: Well, the difference since 99, I would argue is the changes since 99, I think is the enormous impact of passive money and the ETFs and the impact, the structural impacts they've had on the market. I don't know what role that ultimately plays in all of this. I'm sure it plays a role. Um, I've talked to people who say, why would you short a stock that has the, the top five investors or the biggest passive investors out there? Because they're just going to keep it elevated until they can't. Right. Um, there's a lot of thoughts, structural thoughts in the market. And then I think the retail people on the other side, that we've seen before. But now with people buying fractional shares yeah. and people buying, uh, I mean, they're, they're just, it's just a... I, you know, I look, I, I I hate to be the guy who criticizes everything and watch it become real. I
0: don't, I don't know. Markets go down. Manor, or, we, that, that's what happens. They go down. Really? Yeah. No. They I, don't go to the sky? No, they, you know, stocks, they don't just, to the sky? stocks just don't go up all the time. And I think like you know that. that aside from, uh, I know, yeah, I, you of all people know, uh, that aside, I think what you touched on is so very, very true that people, 99, I mean, forget 99. They don't remember 2008, right? The stock's been going up since. And the kind of mental fatigue you get as a long shareholder, seeing your, your portfolio go down month after month, forget about day after day, but if it goes down for a couple of months, it's a big, big deal. And the knock-on effect there could be a very big deal as well. Now, I'm wondering, like, you know, are we just going to keep printing money? Because that seems to be that seems to not matter anymore. Right. Twenty seven trillion dollars in debt. Is that unbelievable to you?
1: The biggest pushback I get is that what's the Fed's incentive to change this approach? Whoever does it is pulling their finger out of the dike.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, you know, the thing about putting your finger in a dike uh, is that like you can't hold back that flow of water, you know, with your finger uh, forever. And eventually it just that pressure builds. I mean, that's the theory, right? So what is what is our money based on now? If if anything, it's faith. That's it. It's faith in our country. It's faith in our economic system. And faith is a funny, fickle thing. When you lose it, you lose it uh and that's what i worry about when it was backed by something other than faith and some kind of cogent monetary policy that made me feel a little better but now it's just you know because we're the united states that's why
1: well we've all seen this i think we all know there will be a a type of an end of sorts that will rattle people we don't know when we don't know how i continue to believe it will be out of left field it will be something that um, it, because no one's going to tell, no one's going to ring the old bell. There is no bell that's rung. There will be signs, perhaps, but even then, they'll be in retrospect. Oh, I should have seen that sign. Right. Um, and 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 that's historically been the way it, it has been. And it and the big question is this: if and when that time comes, is it a buying opportunity or is it get the hell out? And that's going to be the other interesting thing because it's always been, you know, ever since I've been doing this, it's been the old catch a falling knife. Right. Well, guess what? No one's ever caught a falling. There's, n- there's never been a falling knife yeah. other than 99. And even then the smart people back then figured it out and knew how to capitalize on it. So that's what I think the other thing is people will sit there and quote unquote, buy on the dip until they can't buy on the dip anymore. Right. And I don't know how, the, again, I don't know how that's going to um, going to play out. I just know these are things that everyone's talking about
0: that means something too right that's that's part of an inflection point too when everybody is talking about it that creates a worry a murmur in the market and and we'll have to see whatever happens happens it's happened before it'll happen again we'll all be fine and herb you you know you've been fantastic i i know i took a little longer with you today than than uh than you had planned and i appreciate you being a great guest
1: all right well listen it's great talking to you thanks for the
0: time yeah thanks